Hello, welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm here with Todd. Seventh episode today. Yep. Um, I was thinking earlier the uh, a new way to intro our podcast is like, in a world where bikes you know are raced, <laughs> two men trying yeah. so um, uh, a little bit more dramatic yeah, intro. Yeah. We could do that at some point. Uh, but no, we're boring. And um, today we're talking about a pretty cool topic: uh, flexibility, stretching. Um, Todd made an offhand comment. Uh, yeah, well, you know, cycling is a flexibility sport. That's that's an exact interpretation, and I you know I, I instantly jumped on that comment, and now I've convinced him to do a basically a whole podcast on the topic, which I think is totally fair because there is a lot of research on stretching, and you know we can we can dive into that definitely, but I guess I have to uh, answer to my comment that I made about cycling also being a flexibility sport. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? Like I you know so. You know, gymnastics is a flexibility sport. Maybe. Um, so, I mean, yeah, yes, you know, also. What, what is the analogy here? You know, so what else are... What, what other sports require a lot of flexibility? Yeah. I think more than you think, actually. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think so. Gymnastic, I'd say yes, but gymnastics is also like a big power sport. And mm-hmm. to, that's like explosive force production right there. I mean they're all jacked yes and, yeah they, they yeah. are very strong and very like not just strong very powerful right? okay they produce that that force very quickly um you know I mean I, you look at a a sprinter with their maximal stride like that requires some mm. some flexibility if you're going to be a fast sprinter on the track then you need to have a long stride right? yeah going going fast means you turn your legs over fast and you have a long I did notice that uh, looking at people, you know, I'm sitting in the car and watching people run past. Mm-hmm. Their stride is so short compared to, you know, a professional. It's definitely like noticeable. Now everyone is going to notice that uh, when they look yeah, at it. Yes, recency bias. Maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think so many sports lean on flexibility. Maybe not as a primary driver. And I think in the way we think about gymnastics, like, oh my goodness, they're so flexible they're doing the splits or like ballet. And even ballet is like, very much a power, like dance is a very powerful sport. Okay. Um, even though, like, I think we think about it as like flexibility as people who aren't involved, like, oh wow, they're doing that stretch where they have their leg up on the bar and like they're they're leaning over and their heads on the knee, or like yoga, like, oh wow, that's a, that's incredible that you're in this this pose. Like, I didn't know a body could, you know, stretch that far. Yeah. Uh, I think that's probably things that we would think of as like, oh, that's a flexibility sport or flexibility. Activity. Based activity, yeah. We're like, oh yeah, you, clearly if you're more flexible, you must succeed. But I think when we look at cycling, I think we sometimes forget about the, how important the flexibility is. Uh, I think we think, okay, well, I need to have this many watts, or you know, I need to have this aerobic power output, and that's what's going to help, you know, get me across the finish line first. And undoubtedly, that is true, right? But if you can produce big lots, but you're not in an aerodynamic position, then that's not going to get you to the finish line first. Mm-hmm. And getting into that aerodynamic position is going to be a function of flexibility. And then you, know, you have to ask yourself the question, okay, well, I can get in an early aerodynamic position, but can I still push those big watt numbers that I need? Yeah, so th- that's what jumped to my head right away was these power sports are also flexibility sports and is it is it not just a coincidence is there some sort of relationship between the power and the flexibility do they come together uh i don't i don't know that i would say they would come together per se uh, and i think you know 
a muscle is in some has some elasticity to it, right? So if you do stretch it to a point, it's going to want to rebound, and that would be like that's why when you watch somebody jump, right? They they squat down a little bit first. They they load okay. some energy into the muscles, and then they explode. So it needs it needs upward. to be longer in order to become shorter. In a, yeah, in a certain mm-hmm. sense, there's a yeah there's an elasticity component to producing yeah. producing power, like. Yeah, I'm trying to think about another good example of that, but I think jumping is just the best one because we can all okay. think about it, right? If I didn't, if I do just a little teeny counter movement, then I don't get very much explosiveness. Mm-hmm. But if I, I kind of do like a semi deep squat, a nice counter movement, then I can really get my maximum vertical jump. Yeah. And running, right? Running is that. Right? Like the really efficient marathon runners really take advantage of that elasticity. Wait, running is just a bunch of little jumps. Is that what you're saying? In, in essence, right? I mean, you have that double float phase where you both yeah. feet are off the ground. And yeah, it is kind of like jumping from one foot to another, mm-hmm. you know, however far you're going. And, you know, bringing this back to cycling, the top of the pedal stroke, mm-hmm. your spring is tight. Yeah. And uh, it's not, you, you mentioned this, it's not six o'clock quite, it's like seven o'clock, really, where you're sort of yeah, maximally yeah, extended. Yeah, like out of your spring all the way. Yeah, I mean, like six o'clock, I guess it depends on what muscle you're looking at too, right? Okay. Because uh, they all have different uh, peak uh, range of motions. Mm-hmm. The joints, right? The muscle have different peak flexibility points throughout that cycle. Okay. Uh, so like if you're looking at your hip, you're probably like slightly extending still a little bit beyond six o'clock. Uh, okay. Especially like at 12 o'clock, the hip's definitely in its tightest position. I and mean, we, agree, we agree on that. Yeah. Uh, but it has a little extension there. Yeah. And it also depends on where your ankle is and everything. Oh, because so, there's three joints. There's, that yeah, can there's a few, a few things that are moving yeah. throughout that. Well, and if you don't have a good fit, your spine moves too. So I mean. <laughs> yeah, your spine moves. It, it, it all depends like how flexed is your trunk over the bike. Yeah. And it's gonna, all those things are going to have some interplay. So I think to me when I say like, oh yeah, you know, you're, don't forget about your flexibility. The flexibility is important in the sport. Like you have to have enough flexibility to be able to get into the position. Right? Like okay. you, you don't want to be banging against the end of your range of motion all the time. Mm-hmm. You're probably either going to develop some compensations, you're going to hurt yourself, or you're just not going to be efficient. I think I think I've mentioned this in this forum before, but your muscles are always going to be most efficient, most powerful in the middle of their range of motion. Okay. Right. I do know this uh, area, and it's in the um, that one core book by Velo Press. Um, and this there's this idea that our muscle strength is on a Gaussian mm-hmm. about the length. Yeah, the length tension curve. Mm-hmm. And the the center of that length is the optimal length. And it, is it always the halfway point, sort of? Roughly. Yeah. So it, you know if you're when I explain this to people, like if your bicep, if you're doing a bicep curl and you're at a 90 degree angle, you know, that's about halfway. Yep. And, you know, if you're really, you know, that's where everyone flexes their bicep. That's like such a powerful position compared to like if your arms all the way extended or all the way closed, like if it's all the way closed, you obviously can't use can't it much. Yep. Um, but if it's all the way open, you also don't have much ability to pull on it. Yep. So the, you know, this clicked reading this book. Um, basically we want all of our cycling muscles to be at, you know, this optimal length, mm-hmm. you know, at the, at the right point of the pedal stroke. Yeah. Right. It's a balance of two things, right? It's like 
can I get my muscle to hit the peak of its length tension relationship? But then it's also like where the joint of that muscle is moving is optimally positioned for leverage over the crank and the pedal, right? Okay, so those are the two things we want to match up. Yeah, okay. there's two things happening there, right? I mean, if you think about like the three o'clock position, you think about your knee, right, or your hip, like right, your your hip is probably roughly or coming down horizontally. Your hips are in a pretty good position at three o'clock, your knees in a pretty good position at three o'clock, kind of in the middle. Yeah. Of their relative range of the motion, so like, that's why we can push a lot of power on that downstroke and well ground. Yeah, and too. so in the three o'clock is the best position because it's um, a maximal leverage. Yeah, across, you know, relative to the drivetrain. Yeah, if you're, I mean, the you want to push perpendicular to the to the crank, so you want to push straight down at three o'clock. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So the you know. You're saying, you know, I, I always like to put this in context of pros, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I watched a video of, of like, it was a close-up of professionals riding and just the strength and the, the power of the pedal stroke. You can mm -hmm. just see the control that they have. And that comes, you're saying, from, you know, enough flexibility that they're not towards the edge of their um, available range for their mm -hmm. different muscles. So, you know, they're within their, their range of motion. And then also from you know, the, the power that they have matching up well with the bike. Yeah. How the bike is situated. Yeah, that's fair, right? Their, their body is in such a position that they're sort of in the sweet spot of their range of motion, which is the sweet spot where their muscle can produce the best power. And I think part, and you know, they also happen to be in a reasonably aerodynamic position. Um, I think that's all of those things I think are allowed by having above average to excellent uh, flexibility at baseline right? and, okay. and doing something to maintain it, right? Like, the example I always think of is like Adam Hansen. He's got this like crazy fit, mm -hmm. right? Like it's like super low and it's dropped from the cell to the handlebars. Like it's all sorts of crazy by, even, I mean, even by pro standards, right? But certainly by standards of anybody else, like most other people would be seriously interested in setting a bike up like that because yep. like, they don't have the underlying flexibility to get into that position, much less pedal at like elite power. And what are you doing? 21, 22 consecutive grand tours? Uh, I think it was only like 17. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, it's a massive yeah. number though, right? Mm -hmm. to, to ride and 17 straight or something. And stay healthy. Yeah. Right? I and mean, that, that's, that's saying something right there. It says something about your fit to do. You know, essentially, you know, to do three weeks, three times a year, yeah. every day, six to seven hours of not, you know, it's not a joke riding and yeah. you don't get to stop yeah. and there's to no, not yeah, have there's, there's no timeouts. There's no, yeah. yeah, no free passes. No well, break. except for the, you know, the, the natural break every yeah. once in a while, yeah. but, um, to, to be able to do that and then not have horrible, like crippling knee problems or, right, you know, messed up pain, hips. Or, or yeah. I mean, yeah, those guys are tough too, right? I mean, they, yeah. they got there for a reason. Yeah, so we don't know if he's completely pain-free. Um, but, you know, clearly it, nothing was ever severe enough to yeah. take him off the bike. And the other piece of this, right, is that like, that in and of itself is amazing, right? To ride those three grand tours and, you know, 2,300 some odd miles in each of those races. I think also about all the training that he had to do to prepare himself for that. Yeah. And not getting injured in that, right? And look, 
crashes are one thing, right? Like it's trauma, it's different. Like I'm thinking about overuse injuries, right? And things yeah. like the repetitive strain sort of an injury, right? So his flexibility and his fit obviously work together very well mm-hmm. uh, to allow him to be able to put in that sort of training volume, that sort of racing intensity and volume year after year after year. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. One thing though that I am now picking up and you know, we talked about this earlier is like the motor function also has to be there in addition to the flexibility and the position and sort of, um, are my muscles actually doing the right thing? They could be in the right position at the right part of the pedal stroke, Mm -hmm. but if you're not, if they're not actually squeezing on their own, you need to have that sort of neural connection. Mm -hmm. Um, that's definitely something that I remember reading that in Joe Friel's training Bible, um, talking about, you know, the reason you do these high cadence drills and speed skill stuff is this sort of rewires your brain uh-huh. to remind it to use all these different muscles. So, um, how does that, does that play into flexibility is, you know, or is that going to be a new topic? I, I mean, I think that's a, at some level, it's a different topic. At some level, it's a, a very related topic, especially with some of the newer research that's coming out around stretching. Uh, I think, you know, for a long time, it's okay, well, stretching is this mechanical thing that's happening in the muscle right here. You're talking, well, you know, you'll appreciate this, where I talk about like stress strain curves, right? And like, and changing the properties, right? You're getting to the elastic region of that curve, and now you're you're changing the properties of the muscle. Yeah. Um, and that's what's allowing you to improve your flexibility over time. Maybe that's happening. Like, yeah, you can certainly measure short-term changes in stiffness after you stretch. But okay. now, you know, some of the newer research is kind of is talking about uh, neurologic mechanisms that are actually mediating the stretch effect that we see, mm. um, and, and like including one that seems super innocuous, but improving your tolerance to stretch. Like your your, your brain is just becoming okay with you stretching further. Okay. Uh, so like that's that, there's definitely a decent body but of so research the new, on that. The new research is looking more at sort of chronic stretching, chronic increases in flexibility, mm-hmm. whereas this traditional research is looking at, okay, stand there and do a hamstring stretch. Let's measure stiffness. The, so there's both, right? So there's definitely like the, what's the acute effect of stretching? Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of that's okay. Well, the stiffness of the muscle that was reduced and the range of motion at the joint, the muscle impacts was improved. Okay. Great. Like these, these things make sense. Um, there's also like a whole fascinating body of research around the performance that um, comes from that. And usually for static stretching immediately before uh, either like a vertical jump or a, a weightlifting task, it actually diminishes performance. Okay. So don't go do your static stretches before your, your race, or like, yeah. especially if you're going to the gym to do any sort of resistance training. If you don't do your static stretching, then you probably want to do that after to try to increase your range of motion. So yeah, this is sort of... Um... Like this is the stuff that I feel like you learn in middle school uh, in gym classes. Um, stretch before you exercise. Yeah, like stretch before you exercise, but do, do dynamic stretching. Um, I mean, maybe now that the research is caught up. Like, uh, well, yeah. okay, so I, I played soccer, you know, as a junior, and so yeah. this stuff seems maybe a little second nature to me. Yeah. But maybe we should go over sort of this the acute stuff, which is you know before. It's so hard to before training to, to do your um, your dynamic stretches, but I think it, it so I, I think it's like it feels weird in cycling, right? It's like at least in soccer or basketball or a, a field sport, 
you have proper shoes on for doing this sort of thing. Like, yeah. I, I, I have never, and I don't think I've ever seen anyone in cycling shoes try dynamic warm-up, because that would probably be ugly. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably, like, be reason well, for, some people for, for do. mockery and, <laughs> and injury. Okay, so I have a story of, um, in the Chico P1, right before the road race, someone pulled off to the side, and, well, this is funny that you say that, because they, they, they kind of hid behind... Um, a, you know, a little area, and then they were swinging their their whole leg side like back and okay. forth sideways. So like a leg swing you could pull off. Like it's probably the yeah. only dynamic warm up thing you could. Not like lunges though. Yeah, yeah. That you yeah. could really pull off in cycling shoes. So you want to this dynamic stretching in cycling specifically. You you want to do you know you want to pull your heel to your butt. You know just to stretch the quads a little bit. You want to do you know hamstring the you know, Frankenstein's or whatever you yeah. want to call them. Um, I even do a little bit of um, like just calf raises mm-hmm. just to let you know squeeze them a little bit. Basically, you're just firing these muscles in advance, um, either firing them in advance or lengthening them in mm-hmm. advance just to say, hey, we're going to start doing work. You know, remember that you should probably start, uh, you know, fire, functioning properly mm-hmm. and you should be OK with us lengthening you and shortening you. Um, and so, you know, try and hit all the big muscles in your legs and even think about trunk, like if you're not pulling onto your bike, like maybe like a little bit before you head out to the start line, like like, like I do like a windmill type thing, right? Like reaching down opposite opposite toe, mm-hmm. side to side, just with the trunk trunk involved, kind of whole yeah. body whole body movement. And so for me personally, I do this just before changing into my kit. Um, it's best, like you know, I do it in my underwear because then you don't have any sort of um, you know inhibiting clothing. Maximal range of motion yeah. available there. Okay. Um, and. But if I if I do it at um, at a race, I'll have changed into my kit, but I'll be in my um, my street shoes. Mm-hmm. And then, like, if your kit doesn't give you the range of motion that you you know the range of motion to do these, you should probably just size up. Um, that's yeah, that's, <laughs> that's probably inhibiting your performance on the bike too. Yeah. So that's dynamic stretching. And then, so now you can tell me because I'm not 100% sure on this one. Why, why again do we stretch right after? Because our tissues are warm, of course. Okay, but... No, no, really. So, I think we know, we're confident that a warm tissue is going to stretch better and be more accessible than a cold tissue. Okay. Okay, so your, your collagen is going to stretch better and it's going to stretch better. Now, you know, and like we apply this in physical therapy, that's when it comes to the clinic, and we're trying to get more, you know, more range motion for their knee after a surgery. We'll have them hop on the, the bike for a little bit, get the blood flowing, start loosening okay. some things up. Right? It's kind of their dynamic warm-up, and then we'll do whatever you know, manual or whatever stretch that we want to do to try to improve that range of motion after that tissue's already warm. You know, you know, soon enough, definitely improves. Like maybe it's the bike, because okay. it may, that may have something to do with me, right? But sure, it feels like my job's a lot easier after they've been warmed up, right? Because you you always have a patient that comes late and like, well, I'm just gotta try to stretch it. It's like, Maybe I'll be less on the bike today, and inevitably, I feel like I'm working a heck of a lot harder to get the same amount, or even sometimes less, okay. improvement in mobility. Yeah. So the like, if you if you're not worried about your flexibility, like you pass all the mobility tests. We talked about mobility tests in uh, the first episode. Mm-hmm. You pass all those. Is there still a reason to stretch after your ride? Is it just that it's such a great opportunity to improve your flexibility because you're so warm, because your body will be receptive to this lengthening of these muscles? Is there another reason, like, does it decrease injury? Does it help 
with recovery. Like I personally, in my experience, I don't really think it does anything. Um, so I think from on those metrics, I'd say I think the research is undecided or ineffective. Right? It's like yeah, you can find a study or two that says it feels like I recover better, or you can find a study or two that definitely says like eh, no, no effect. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think injury risk, you know, even static and dynamic stretching, it's eh, like those are usually the four. Okay. Right? Like dynamic stretching the four. Maybe static session before, most likely not. Can yep. improve, and those are usually field sports studies. I'm not aware of any research that's been okay. specifically looking at cycling as an activity uh, yeah. to assess injury. Risk. And the type of injuries and in, the overuse injuries in cycling are so different than something like tennis or soccer, where you're you know you're planting and pushing at weird angles and stuff. Yeah, I mean, although, I mean, I can think of some of them being flexibility related. Right? Like if you have low back pain while you're cycling and your hamstring flexibility is miserable, I can see that you know these things being connected. And if you yeah. were to improve your hamstring mobility, your low back might feel better on the bike. Mm -hmm. Then we're gonna go down a little little pathway of my own opinion here, which okay. is I'm I'm of the opinion. We talked I talked about this I think the last time we were talking about like well, why is mountain biking good? And I said well you know if you learn how to crash that's quite a useful skill to have. Mm -hmm. I'm of the belief that having better flexibility is probably protective when you crash because your body's going to go all over the place, right? That you have no control over. So yeah, I would hypothesize that if you have better mobility and things can stretch a little further mm -hmm. before they, you know, hit their breaking point, that's probably good for you. That's probably yeah. semi-protective. I don't think anybody's ever gonna let me do that study, nor do I really <laughs> want to do that study. Yeah, this is one of those you can't. You can't figure it out, but there's no reason why it's not true. You know, yeah. there's, there's no way to know for sure. Right. It's it's reasonable. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe we can go look back at Adam Hansen's you know streak of uh, races and see how many crashes he was yeah. involved in. Like we, we can imply that he's quite a flexible individual, mm -hmm. and compared to other people, did that. Well, I think even you know even without this uh, this one particular thing of it, it's you know you you probably will end up a little bit better in a crash if you're more flexible. There's still other really good reasons um, to stay flexible. But So on the topic of this um, crash practicing, mm -hmm. I, I went to one of the USA cycling development camps uh, when I was, I think a freshman, I think I was a freshman in college. And they took us into a grassy field and mm -hmm. we're all in our kits and they just made us do forward rolls. Um, and they, they, they were like, how many can you do in a row? And I remember, you know, doing like 20 and just standing up and just like being horribly dizzy. But, um, you know, I have what there was a crash where I went over my bars and, you know, I rolled and I stood up and it's like, whoa, uh, it was almost such such an exact parallel to that drill mm -hmm. that if you if you're a developing cyclist, um, do a couple forward rolls and just get your brain used to sort of tucking one of your shoulders uh, down. Yes, bad bad things happen when you extend your arm. Yeah, like only only bad things will happen. Yeah. Your wrist, your collarbone. <laughs> like, yeah, mm -hmm. it's not those those were not meant to absorb. And even I think force. the one time I crashed, I even was able to get my head down. Like yeah. my helmet was intact. I was yeah. able to tuck so much that I landed, you know, rolled straight onto my back. So I was impressed by my own um, 
you know, my lower Apti- brain. Aptitude. Yeah. <laughs> Crashing aptitude. I had no control over it, but it was me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, you see that, right, in a lot of the martial arts, right? It's this, this skill of falling, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how they roll and, and, you know, absorb that impact, control that energy yeah. uh, without being injured. I think that's, yeah, same, same thing we're trying to do when mm-hmm. we practice that. It's just, like, how can I absorb that in- energy in the best way possible? Yeah. And then that brings up the topic of, um, you know, as you become more experienced, you face better, you know, opponents in martial arts and then, you know, they're stronger, they're able to do more extreme moves, but you're also able to, you know, survive them almost. Mm-hmm. Counter, uh, you can yeah. counter them better. And thinking, you know, that was one thing with soccer was there's a point when you're almost too strong for your own good. And you lean on your strength as opposed to learning how to sort of be, you know, soft, nimble and achieving your goal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in cycling, there's, there's also a similar thing of, um, you know, there are these really strong riders who don't have a lot of race experience and you're, there's this place where, you know, you're like, you're too strong for your own good sort Mm -hmm. of thing. And, uh, and, and then also for me personally, I'm, I'm too, you know, my, my muscles are too big for my own good. And I'm pedaling at 75 cadence when I should be doing 100. There's just a lot of parallels here. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. Um, so I, I, I did, did a little research on stretching right, just because I wanted to see. I want to make sure that what I knew was still valid and, and true. And it turns out it was. Um, there's this one study that I found out of Brazil that I found was like totally fascinating about stretching before doing resistance training. So okay. I, I thought I would share it. Was, it was just it was just like it was very interesting. It was like, huh, well, gee, this is like the the punchline wasn't what I thought it would be when I started reading the study. Like I, I went through like some of it, it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense, like, oh, that's an interesting finding. So what the belief was very simple. They said, Okay, you got two groups and either you're going to stretch before you do the resistance training protocol, which was knee extension, so it's like a purely quad-based workout, Okay. Um, or you're going to not stretch before you do this. Mm-hmm. That's it. And then we're going to look at your one, one rep max, we're going to look at your flexibility, uh, we're going to look at how much hypertrophy you get uh, throughout the study. And so, I already said, static stretching reduces your force production. Yes. So. Not shockingly, they found, and their protocol was, you basically did two sets to fatigue. Okay. Of this, of the exercise. Like both to failure? Yeah. Okay. So over the duration of the study, not surprisingly, the stretching group did fewer reps. Mm -hmm. Total, right? Well, okay, that makes sense. They had reduced, you know, that that fits. Um, And by doing fewer reps, uh, they had less hypertrophy. That makes sense. This makes sense, right? They did most work. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had better flexibility. Okay, this makes sense, right? Okay. They stretched, the other group didn't. Yeah, also they put less fatigue on the... They put less load, they did yeah. fewer, they did fewer uh, shortening cycles. Yeah. Right? So, okay, this, this, this makes sense. Okay, I'm ready. This, this is the punchline, right? This, okay. this part doesn't fit. The gains in their one rep max for both groups are similar. Like not statistically significant. Oh no! Like yeah, no, not at all. I mean, it was like it was both. It was to the first decimal place. It was like twelve percent, like twelve point seven, twelve point nine percent. I recall. So it's interesting, right? Just thinking about cycling, we want to increase our force, 
but we don't necessarily want to increase our mass. Yeah. So now it's like, oh, well, so I should go to like, so maybe you don't go to the, don't stretch before you go to the gym. But wait a minute, for cycling, it seems like if you apply the results of the study, mm. stretching before you do resistance training is the perfect thing to do, right? To maximize yeah. the result we want, which is increased mm. ability to produce force without without really increasing our muscle mass very much. Yeah. So right. So if you're a bodybuilder, this is like yeah. don't stretch, right? Yeah. But if you're a cyclist. Well, wait a second. Maybe we have such a unique. We're in such a I unique situation. Yeah. Because that's gonna mitigate the hypertrophy and the the mass gain, but I'm still gonna get the, the yeah. Strength. I mean, and I get flexibility. Like this, this seems like yeah. beautiful. It's clear that the, you know, if if you're a cyclist, you want to increase your flexibility because that's something that we all struggle with, uh, and you also want to be strong. Yeah. It seems to make sense that should okay next winter. I'm going to be doing my static stretching before going to the gym, for sure. So this is a, this is a 2017 study, so I'm going to have to do a little search and see if anybody's like done a similar okay. study, right, and either replicated their results yeah. or you know, uh, refuted their well, results. Well, I guess the thing that initially jumped to my mind was, so is it the hypertrophy of the muscles that causes us to have a higher one rep max, or is it something else? Well, so I think that's the other piece, right? I think there's... there's I'll say always is always a very strong word, but there are neural changes that change our strength, right? And mm-hmm. so there's recruitment changes, and we know if you look at hypertrophy, that takes time, weeks, right? several weeks, four, yeah. six, eight weeks or more um, to start to change and get muscle changes in muscle mass. But that if you start a weightlifting program, you get stronger before that, right? So you yeah. haven't added cross-sectional area and muscle yet, mm-hmm. but you've changed the neural signaling and the neural pathways yeah. a little bit so yeah I, I think you know without speculating too much it seems to me that there's certainly a neural effect that was mm-hmm. happening in that study in that that whatever the crucial amount of reps that happened they got that neural effect so what i mean maybe they were fatiguing the neural system right yeah and that like and that the stretching right you know they talk about in some of the the neurophysiology now that there's a maybe an inhibitory signal that happens from stretching, or that there's you know a reduction of the like the resting membrane potential, or like like just the threshold to activate that muscle has been uh, increased, mm-hmm. right? So it's harder to activate the muscle. So perhaps that's the effects. Like it, you know, there's a change at the muscle level um, in, the, in the physiology. Therefore, the brain had some stronger signal to recruit the muscle to move the same mm-hmm. force. And it may have been a central fatigue issue that happened in both cases, right? Like the brain reached the point where it's like, oh, I, can't, I can't send the signal strong enough to the muscle to contract it anymore, therefore yeah. I had a failure. And that was similar across each, despite the number, but it was the number of reps, right? And the number, the load on the muscle that actually created yeah. hypertrophy. Hmm. But the neural and the central fatigue that yeah. uh, is what was actually the impetus for creating the strength change. If anything, this... I mean, it, it brings up a lot of great questions about our like how our bodies work and how you know weight training works and stuff. So that's cool. That's a really cool study. Yeah, I just it's like I think it's it's so counterintuitive to all the like everything else matches with what you read in the literature except that one point. It's like, huh? And that's particularly I think just so interesting for cyclists. Right? Oh, well, I need to have flexibility. I need to have strength. I don't want to have mass. 
and there's a solution for me. Yeah. Right. I think the like the reason cycles don't want to go to the gym is like, oh, I'm gonna have mass. I don't want. Yeah. I don't want to do that. And there's other right. There's there's weight training protocols to try to counteract that. Mm-hmm. But then maybe there's this other little nugget, right? That, yeah. That helps you also counteract that too. Mm-hmm. And well, don't get me started on the whole I don't want to add mass thing, because I th- I mean professional cyclists are jacked. Um, well, so okay. So, but is is jack a function of like absolute muscle mass, or is it a function of muscle mass relative to body fat mass? Hmm. I tend to like like I think there's a very different look between a pro cyclist and an NFL linebacker. Yeah, and I think the also um, you know I'm thinking like Michael Matthews. Mm-hmm. He looks like full body ripped, mm-hmm. and then like Thibaut Pino. Like, not so much. Yeah, um, it's just, like, lean dude. Yeah. And um, I remember I had a poster of Vincenzo Nibali mm-hmm. in my room, and I noticed, like, he still has, like, really large quads, um, despite his arms being penciled in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think definitely a characteristic of top riders is a lot of total muscle mass. So maybe – I don't know how to shift the trend away from people thinking they don't need to have more muscle mass, but – well, I mean, all, at the end of the day, right, a pound of muscle moves your pedal with a pound of fat or other tissue does not move your pedals. Yeah, that's true. And then, you know, that, that speaks to the importance of um, lean, you know, the low, what, what's the term? Adipose t- tissue? Yes, yeah. less adipose tissue. Yep. Oh, okay. So I, I have to ask this question. I was thinking, I was just like, one thing I was thinking about today. So, and I know the answer to this. But I've known it for a while. I think it's just an interesting, like, kind of okay. mind twist. Wait, so is this a quiz for me then? Yeah, well, it's just a, like, you know, did you know sort of deal. But I'll, okay. I'll, I'll pose it as a question, right? And I think you'll find this interesting because you were, you were doing some specific rides in your training, right, trying to bias towards fat burning uh, with, with the intent, right, of cutting down on fat mass. Yeah. Right? So when you lose fat mass, right, it's you burn it extensively as, as energy mm-hmm. for some reason. So how, how does it exit the body? Oh, I know this one too. It's, um, it's as the CO2. Yeah. Well, isn't it's like 70% uh, of the CO as CO2. So the oxygen that comes in, yep. your body adds a carbon atom to it. Yep. And then atom by atom, that fat tissue leaves your body. Yeah. I mean, it's not, so it's also some, H2O, right? It's like uh, combustion in your heart, right? Like, except much cleaner, you know, no, uh, right? But yeah, right. You, anytime you have combustion, you have carbon dioxide and water as yeah. as the output, which is sort of like a little mind bending thing, right? Like, oh wow, like I I burned fat. Like, yes, I got energy, right? I got kilojoules for it, but then. Also got like I exhaled it basically, uh-huh. right? Like, that's that's how it's coming out. And then so like building on that, if if you figure you know basically if you figure out a way to breathe faster, you burn more fat. Wow, well, I mean you have to also have you have to have the the impetus to burn the fat though, right? Like breathing, mm. breathing faster in and of itself is not necessarily like yeah I, mean, I guess you're using your respiratory muscles more. yeah so that's the well okay so but it's, it's got that's a, sort of it's the like idea trivial the you know if you're doing something that burns fat you're also doing something that raises your rest you know your respiration rate yes so you know there's some sort of um 
you know, tight, tight relationship between the increased respiration and the increased fat burn. Yeah, those two, to a point, right? Because then, yeah. and then eventually you, you get start. into carbohydrate burning, and that's a whole different thing. So, yeah, that's like a really cool idea. It just, yeah, I just had to throw it out there because it's just so, such a, I mean, it kind of goes with that punchline of like, oh, that's kind of weird. Physiology, mm-hmm. trivia. So useful, useful for trivia. Yeah, or something. for, yeah, quizzo. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. I don't think there's anything else from the, the studies that I looked at that were, Interesting. I mean, I, like, I think I already got it. It's just like, well, like, yeah, the other punchline is, you know, maybe stretching isn't about changing muscle length, but actually changing your perception of what, what is it okay. It's like resetting your, um, your warning light, right? You're like, oh, that's an uncomfortable stretch to a little bit more range of motion. Uh, there are some models that say maybe we increase the length of the muscle, but um, there's also like, equally good research that says like, oh, your brain says, yeah, that, that's fine, keep going. Mm, so stretching can be just as much about calming your brain down and letting it know it'll be okay at these more extreme range of motions as actual changes to the muscle itself. Yeah. Okay. This is a, a jury still out. But the, at the end of the day, this is the, you know, we talked about acute stretching Mm-hmm. sort of how do we reach long-term flexibility goals? And I think, you know, you're a PT, so the classic example is, oh, I, I work 60 hours a week and I have, you know, really bad back pain and, you know, oh, your hamstrings are really tight. That's, mm-hmm. This is such a classic scenario. And also your glutes, you know, don't work. Um, you know, I have to, you know, if your hamstrings were longer, you probably wouldn't have back pain. Um, Probably. Yeah, yeah. So you don't know for sure, but you know what? What do you tell that? Like, it's months. I I used to have really tight hamstrings. It's it was three months, and I was stretching like way more than I think you could expect. Like just a, just a, a sedentary person. Yeah, um, a non so, high level. You know, I think in in that case, you know, so in the in the rehab case, I think sometimes half the battle or more is changing the other precipitating factor right? like if you work at a desk and you're sitting at your desk for 40 50 hours a week changing that a little bit sometimes goes a really long way okay. right? so a standing desk or taking some breaks to stand or like any any number of things to just not be sitting for that long yeah. uh, sometimes goes, or sometimes it's even like oh yeah i sit at my desk for 40 hours a week and then i go home and plop myself on the couch Right, and watch TV, binge watch whatever on Netflix or yeah. whatever, whatever else you know there is. Um, it's like okay, so like now you're not just sitting for eight or nine hours every day. You're sitting for like twelve and a half, and you commute in your car. Like you're sitting all the time. Yeah. So so it's not changing that stuff, right? Okay. Go for a walk for half an hour when you get home, right? So you're not sitting for half an hour. Yeah. And see see how that feels. But then, yeah, you need you need to stretch. Um, I didn't specifically get any electron hamstring stretching. I did look at a little bit around ankle stretching, um, but certain said a, a muscle is a, a muscle. Um, okay. You know, and it was talking about like the total amount of stretching that they did in these protocols, uh, the different the different research studies, <laughs> and they grouped it and they said, okay, it was less than 3,000 seconds, so that's 50 minutes. Okay. Right, for the total protocol. Uh, between 
3,000 and 5,000, well, more than 5,000. Okay. Right? So, like, there's a lot of stretching. Yeah. Right? I mean, at, we're at, like a couple, at, like, several hours of stretching. In, like, per session? No, no, no. Like, over the course of the study. Okay. Right? So, if you did a four week study, right? And then I said, oh, I can do this math very well on the fly, but, right? Like, you said, four, let's say, like, you had to do 15 minutes of stretching over four weeks, like, two minutes a day. Okay, Roughly. and then you multiply that in, and, and then it ends and up being like this. this, right? That would be okay. the middle group, I think. Wait, you only have to do like 50 uh, minutes of stretching to, to see really good results? Yeah, so for the ankle, what they're looking at is these groups were very similar in their study. Um, mm -hmm. There's a meta-analysis, so looked at like several studies, right? And they said, you know, the gains were on the order of five degrees of okay. ankle mobility. And right, for, for an ankle, specifically in, in dorsiflexion, so that's bringing your toes up towards your knee. Mm -hmm. Not, like five degrees is pretty significant. Like yep. five, five to ten degrees is kind of like the, the minimum you really want to function in life. If you start to get like into running, then you you want maybe fifteen, twenty, thirty degrees, right? Like most people don't have a heck of a lot more than than that the way you measure it. So mm -hmm. that one, and we call it zero. We call it the nine degree angle. Your foot is perpendicular to your shin. yeah. Okay, so. Five degrees on on that is pretty substantial, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, hamstring, of course, has more excursion, right? Like, yeah. It's going to have a bigger range of motion, potential range of motion. Well, and so, you know, by thinking about the, the you know, percent increase in length. Sure. Um, it's probably not that different. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it as percentage, right, then that could be, for some people, that could be like 50% increase, mm -hmm. but that could be a... Infinite increase when it went to zero. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, even like, don't, if for somebody had zero uh, dorsiflexion and you know, went to five, you're like, that's a huge improvement in their quality of life and their walking ability. Okay. Right? And that's, and you're saying that study was like 3,000 seconds. Yeah. Um, some on the order of uh, like a couple minutes a day. Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe to apply this to our sport, and to be fair, I think angles are a little different. I think we load like we load them differently. Like baseline, if you sit in a chair, your ankle's probably at zero. Whereas like okay. your hamstring is not close to that relative position in its total range of motion when you're sitting in a chair. It's it, worse. The knees, yeah, the knee's bent. Yeah. Right? So it's short. Okay. So that I think that makes a little bit of a difference, but I do think it is, like, I've seen enough studies around, like, I do think it is on the order of a couple minutes a day, honestly, to, mm -hmm. but it's, right, it's weeks, right? Yeah. Said, to really see that on a couple minutes a day, you've got to do it for, consistently, for weeks and weeks. Yeah, I think my, my one teammate at the beginning of the year said, I want to do plank, I want to do a minute of plank every day. Mm -hmm. It's, like, it's so easy. You can do it, like, in any... You can be anywhere. Yeah. yeah. You just like go into a plank and then 60 seconds later you stand up and yeah. you're done. Um, but at the same time, that's it's almost more difficult because it's not, you know, it's, it's not hard to do your workout because mm -hmm. it's your workout. And, you know, as a cyclist, you know, this is what I do today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you get your kit on and it's this big almost ceremony. Um, and that's... I remember reading stuff about um, like discipline and doing stuff every day, and w when it's there's like fanfare involved, mm -hmm. it's almost easier to do it than if it's just this little thing because you you end up laying in bed and you go, 
Oh, I didn't. I didn't right, do planks like, today. Well, let me just hit the snooze there for one more yeah. minute, and I'll be good. Yeah, and I think there's a couple things happening there. Like one, for sure, like riding your bike is way more glamorous and cool than stretching. Mm-hmm. Right? I think we always agree on that. Like stretching's not sexy. It just it's not right. Like compared mm-hmm. to like getting out and riding a bike, like, you're gonna have way more enjoyment on riding a bike. Uh, but then I think there's also something about like, making it happen, right? Like, if you say, look, I'm going to do X every single day, after you get into it, like I think like, there's some crucial point, right? I know there's, there's research in the psychology world about like, habit formation and what it takes, and I don't want to quote it incorrectly, but it's not, it's really not that long if you do it for a series of days, mm-hmm. and then it, it almost becomes second nature, right? It's just like, you brush your teeth twice a day, right? Yeah. Somebody convinced you that you should do it, and you probably don't even question. You're like, oh, I, should, I, I just I do it because I do it, and I, I get that nice minty feeling in my mouth, and I'm yeah. or whatever. Which I think that's like a, that's a secondary thing, right? That the toothpaste manufacturers okay. let us enjoy, right? It's like, oh, a nice minty feeling. It's yeah. all, that's marketing, right? right. And that's that's marketing, but I think it also goes with the behavior change, right? Because it's a nice feeling, mm-hmm. right? You you want to feel that. Yeah. Um, it's like there's some satisfaction that comes like, oh, my mouth is clean, or mm-hmm. at least I think this mint feeling means that my mouth is clean because that's what I've been told, and now I associate the two, and I just do it all the time because that's yeah. what I'm supposed to do. And so I think, like, how many how many days have you brushed your teeth in your life? Like, right, thousands upon thousands, yeah. if not tens of thousands. Well, just like one. your age times two. Yeah, basically like minus <laughs> times whatever. 50, yeah, like yeah. a year or two. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think. That's, you know, it, and I think you can get that with whatever it is, stretching, plank every day, squats every day. Mm-hmm. If you just, build, if you have to build it though enough days in a row, like if you get on the train and then once you're on that train, you're just, you're going, yeah. then you're like, you know, oh yeah, I've been doing planks, you know, for a minute every day since whatever, 2015 now, like it's been four years. I just do it every day because that's what I do. It's like yeah. part of it. It's like just like, like part of your being now. Hmm. So the, I, I have a story about my, you know, I, 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 I never got an official measurement, but I'm pretty sure I was at about 30 degrees. Um, if you, if you lay on your back and you lift one leg up mm-hmm. and you make sure your other leg doesn't move at all, I could get a 30 degree angle with the ground mm-hmm. about, uh, three or four months ago. And I'm now, I want to say like 70 Sure. Um, and so I, I have a personal story about, you know, ex- stretching and stretching every day sort of thing, but I, I'd like to talk a little bit about what, you know, say someone's like, yeah, I know I should be more flexible, like makes sense. What, you know, how does this apply to a cyclist? What's a cyclist's goal? What are they trying to do with flexibility? What are the major muscles? Um, how do I take advantage of being more flexible? Isn't the goal always to go faster? Or, I mean, look, it's probably the most important piece of it is to be more comfortable on your bike in the fastest position possible so you can ride efficiently and go fast and win races. Like, I mean, like, right? It's like, so some, everything. <laughs> it's some extension of that, right? Like, it just depends on what your goals are as a cyclist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think all those things are. In, interrelate in one way or another. Like, if I'm comfortable on the bike, then like 
when my legs hurt, it's one less thing, right? Like, so my back's not hurting because I'm in a weird position that I don't have flexibility to maintain. Now, it's just my legs hurt, right? Like, oh, that's what's yeah. my consciousness. And I can focus on that or not focus on that, whatever. And I'm not focusing on my back aching me, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm more flexible, I can get into a more aerodynamic position, like a more aggressive position. So that's a you know, that's a benefit to you, right? If, if you get lower and more forward, you can probably get more weight on that front wheel. You probably, like, probably handles better. Um, mm-hmm. Also, like I think when I think about mountain biking, like being able to shift your weight dynamically, like weight over the front, weight over the back, depending on how steep the grade is and all that stuff. And, and we talked about this a little bit before, like dissociating the, the bike and the body, and you need flexibility mm-hmm. to do that. Because if you don't have flexibility, then your bike gets in the way, or your body gets mm-hmm. in the way of your bike. So you gotta do that. So I, I think about those things, and then you know, you want to be comfortable in the middle of this range of motion, so we can produce maximal power yep. with our muscles uh, to be able to get from point A to point B, presumably faster than the other people in the race. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I, mean, I think it, it, it almost touches every part of cycling in my mind. Yep. Like all the things that we want to do are somehow going to be impacted by our flexibility. So then. What are the important muscle groups that need to be yeah, flexible for how, us? How do I do this? <laughs> sort of. I, this, this sounds too well, good to be true. Yeah. Why, why am I learning about Just this? Just for six payments of 1995. <laughs> <laughs> um, can, I, um, can I stab at what I think? Um, you know, so I, I now stretch um, probably three or four times a week for, I'll do like an hour. It's, it's okay. basically my version of yoga Fair. and everyone says, just do yoga. Um, no, I want to do the stretches that I want to do. Um, and, and sort of, I'm, I'm trying to make them specific to my personal issues. You know, what, what do I find where I lack mobility? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the big ones for me, I think hamstrings. Absolutely. I think that's true yeah. for every human. <laughs> uh, well, no, I think, Humans in Western civilization, yes, okay. absolutely. Um, but I think so. Hamstring and the bike play a huge role when we talk about flexibility. They attach to the pelvis, so mm-hmm. they're going to impact the angle that your trunk can achieve, right? So how low can your your torso be on the bike? Mm-hmm. So the hamstrings are tight, your trunk's going to be more upright. So and your trunk is limited by the fact that it's connected to your pelvis, which That's is right, right, so, connected to your hamstrings. Yeah, and it's also going to influence the total extension that your knee can have, right? So in essence, your seat height, mm-hmm. right? So if your hamstrings are very tight, you won't be able to extend your knee as far at the bottom of the pedal stroke and have your trunk like, and these two things yeah. are interconnected because they're both anchored by the pelvis and your mm-hmm. bottom on the seat. So like, hey, I want to raise my seat up. Great, except now I have to lean my trunk further down to get my handlebars maybe, or raise my handlebars up one or two. Well, oh shoot, they're both limited by hamstrings. Yeah. So I can't do both. So yes, absolutely, hamstrings, hands down, and super important. Also, you know, your your quads won't be able to squeeze as well. You know, you can't get as good hip extension and knee extension if you if your hamstrings are tight. Yeah. Um. So hamstrings, that's a huge one, and I mean that was my main focus uh, with with what I was doing, and the other ones that are more difficult, I think glute. Stretches are important mm-hmm. if you're actually engaging them. That's the first. You know, make sure make sure you're using them so that they get tight, so that you can stretch them. I, so I also think we don't use the full range of motion available to the glutes on the bike. So we we never we're never stretching it all the way in cycling. So I think they can get tight because it's not going through its full. Okay. So um, 
At at twelve o'clock, the glute is at its longest. In the cycling. In cycling. Yes. Yeah. Right. right. Theoretically, um, your glute's at its longest if you bring the knee like all the way up into your chest. Mm-hmm. Right. And we don't presume like maybe on TT bike you might get close to that. Yeah. Um, but then also you think about it, your glute can also extend like behind you like here can extend behind you several like twenty degrees, right? Yeah. And you so, never get that position to your hip flexors. Yeah, if you want to um oh so it is your hip flexors being stretched to get onto extension. Yeah. So if you if you just stand and you push your femur behind you, your mm-hmm. upper leg behind you. Yeah. That you should be squeezing your glutes to do that. To act, yes, to yeah. do that action. Um, so the that's I mean probably a whole other topic is glute activation, but um, basically it's a giant muscle that can definitely you know help uh, you uh, yeah <laughs> propel I mean, yourself if, forward. If you're not using your glutes to push your bike forward, you're carrying around a lot of dead weight. Right? Yeah. That is your largest muscle. Should be. Mm-hmm. And well, I mean, look, I got my cat too without using my glutes. So um, it, it's possible. Uh, I definitely have, since recruiting my glutes, just, you know, strides uh, better for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, th- I feel like stretching my glutes is a good check to make sure I'm using them because, you know, you can feel the difference between, you know, when you haven't used this muscle, you know, and you lean into it, it's like, oh, well, there it is. Whereas if, if you use it and you lean into it, you can almost feel it, the, the fibers sort of like pulling themselves apart as you there's get some, into the position. There's some resistance. Right? Well, we talked about this. There's some stiffness there, Yeah. right, that you're undoing or you're, you're working against. Mm-hmm. And then um, definitely hip flexors in um, sort of like what hip flexion is, is that same position as you're squeezing your glutes. Well, it's the, the opposite, right? It's the counter. So squeezing your glutes extends the hip. Yeah, so that stretches the hip flexors. That's right. a, that's how I'm thinking. Okay. Here. So hip flexion though is bringing your knee to your chest. Yes. Um, and then um, squeezing your glute is stretching your hip flexors. Yes. So um, you, oh, well, you like a hip flexor. I like to think about this in this way. Like a hip flexor stretch is just pulling your femur behind you, basically. Yes. Or for our, our male listeners out there, you, you get there in the proposal position. Yeah. I mean, for not for not only male listeners, yeah. I assume that yeah, I don't they understand make any that. Uh, but yes, that, that will mm-hmm. that will achieve that. Um, I mean, the other the other piece is the hip flexors are very interesting because they attach to the pelvis and the spine. Mm-hmm. Right? So now they can we just talk about the hamstrings influencing the pelvis and the trunk and your positioning and your knee. Yeah. They, well, so, they connect to the femur too. Yeah. Right. But okay. I, mean, I think, yes, femur, but all, yeah. So that, that whole intersection, right? Mm-hmm. So if hip flexors are too tight, they're pulling your spine into extension. Right? Yep. So, or, yeah. So, or they're, or they're limiting your ability to extend at the bottom of the pedal stroke potentially. So there's some, some interesting mm-hmm. interplay. I, I, I doubt that anybody's limited by hip flexor tightness at the bottom of the pedal stroke. You have to have really tight. So I was when when I got my first fit with you and you said you should raise your seat two centimeters to get optimal knee extension. I think I raised it one centimeter and I could feel my Yeah, my hip flexor pulling at the bottom of the but I was in a bad place there. Yeah. Um, So it can happen, but it's it's 
Yeah, and well, rare. the main reason it would happen is if you're if you have posterior tilt on the bike, then your back needs to what's the opposite of extension? It's already flexed, right? Yeah, and that's that's lengthening. So it's like it's pulling your back away. Yeah, it, yeah um, it's it's taking some length from your hip flexors potentially yeah. too. So if, if you do have issues at the bottom of your pedal stroke, it's probably just as much a torso, your torso is too far bent forward, that, just as much that as it is your seat height. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, there may be the other muscle you haven't touched on yet. And there's a Uh-oh. theme, there's a theme. Am I going to lose? There's a theme here, though, right? It's things that attach to the pelvis and some other contact point on your bike mm-hmm. indirectly influence your position. So in this case, it's your lats. So your your lats attached well through the the lumbar fascia attached to the um, the pelvis and okay. attached to your scapula and your humerus. So mm-hmm. right, so that's going to affect the relationship between your seat and your handlebar. So the your lats are basically the length of your lats is how far your shoulders can be away from your pelvis. That's yeah, that's one way to think about it. Yeah, but like your upper arm, right? It's your, it's your humerus. Okay. All right, so it's it's this. Okay. And so it's that it's that angle between like your trunk and your upper arm as you reach out to the handlebar. Yeah. But it also is influenced by what your pelvis is doing. Okay. So if you have your if your pelvis is tucked under you. Yeah, that yeah. length gets longer. Yeah, posterior tilt, then you've mm-hmm. lengthened your lats. And so then that means if your, your lats are limited, can't. your arms can't be extended okay. as far. So I think it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't think it's as important as the hamstrings or the hip flexors. But I think it's another one that's like, it's all, like you'd be on the list of like, hmm, something's not, right? Like your hamstrings look okay and your hip flexors look okay. But why do you have back pain? But yeah, your back is bugging you or you're sitting, right? And like a really far anterior tilt. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, your lats might be short because your lats are pulling you into that anterior tilt. Yeah. Uh, and that's, and that's the issue there. And, um, you know, there's all these cyclists who have like upper back. Mm-hmm. Um, big thoracic hypothesis. Like, yeah, a hunchback mm-hmm. sort of thing. It, that's also your lats, is that correct? I think that's just more lack of thoracic extension. Okay, but well, aren't it, you know, isn't your posture determined by the flexibility of your muscles? Yes. And Am I going out on a limb saying that? No, I mean, you know, so your your skeleton is moved by muscles, and, right, and it's connected by ligaments and other soft tissue and joints, right? So if you, you know, let your, you, you've all seen like the anatomy lab skeleton, right? Like it's really super floppy. Yeah. We, we have other tissues that make our skeletons not that floppy mm-hmm. uh, inherently, right? Before we get to our muscles being layered on there. But like, so some of those tissues will have an impact. Uh, it's like the ligamentous type tissue. But okay. yeah, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that your muscle length has a, a non-trivial impact on your posture. Okay. Right. Like independent of the other factors, there's certainly interplay between each of these things, mm-hmm. right? But yeah, like your muscle length and your muscle activation, right? Like if your your abs are jelly, then right, yeah. your your posture is going to be a certain way. Like your glutes don't work. Yeah, and, and then that's the other thing. And, and you told me, I don't think you've said this on the podcast, but you've said to me before, um, 
you know, the, the fibers are there. If you, you know, your glutes is say you don't activate them. Mm-hmm. You have glutes, mm-hmm. you just don't use them. And that's a lot better than not, you know, not having the muscle itself. Yeah. So it's, it's, it could, you know, your postural issues or your, um, whatever the reason you can't reach the handlebars and you have lower back pain could be that, you know, this muscle is just not functioning properly. Not rather than, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, honestly, I'd say big picture, that's in some ways good news. Like it's, you can change the nervous system. You can change the brain with repetitions fairly quickly, like faster than you can build muscle for sure. Yeah. So like if you have the muscle and you've forgotten how to activate it with repetition, with practice and like the right drills and training, you can retrain the brain and you know get that signal going yeah. uh, a lot more readily than you say like, oh, I, like, my biceps are too small, my quads are too small, I got to build up that muscle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to take a while. It you better be patient, patient, but hey, we just need to get the activation going. You can, you can see changes pretty quick and sometimes that's what explains some of the, like, when I see a patient and I, you know, I do something, right? I do this some technique, some intervention, like, oh, I feel so much better now. Well, I didn't change any, like, there's, there's no magic there. I didn't change any, you know, tissue link magically. Probably changed something in the nervous system, right? Probably affected the brain or the recruitment pattern, right? And there's enough repetitions that change it. And it's probably a short-term change. But we, we changed some recruitment pattern that then made this movement now pain-free. Right? Yeah. We got the right the right group of muscles working together. Um, so yeah, sometimes that can change fast. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes even like within a session of therapy, like, oh, whoa, that's way better. Um, but even like when we talk about the long-term changes and improvements, those happen faster with the nervous system than they do with the muscle yeah. system. So my, my story about that is when we first started working on activating my glutes, I, my 20-minute power went up. I think for four percent and like a week or two and just um, just because I started squeezing my glutes mm-hmm. um, which you know and and you said it was short term it did sort of go back away before I really started to cement the use of my glutes but mm-hmm. um, it was definitely a, a nervous system relearning rather than you know my glutes getting much bigger yeah and that, right that was at the like, conscious level right like, okay I'm going to consciously contract my glutes while I'm yeah. pedaling. And then at some point, when you practice that enough, it becomes subconscious, right? It becomes automatic. And ultimately, I think that's where you're getting to right now, right? It's like, okay, now I've incorporated this new pattern of a pedal stroke that includes my glutes, and now I can consistently produce this higher level power. And oh, there's probably some other train effect that's happening too, um, mm-hmm. right? From all the, all the miles and everything that you're doing. Yeah. So let's see, any other muscles? Um, I don't normally do quads. I've always had really loose quads. Um, by, by which you mean you meet your heel to your butt. Right? Yeah. And that, that's as far as your, well, most of your quads want to stretch. Um, and so there's rectus femoris, those cross across the hip joint. Yep. And so you can stretch that more by bringing your heel to your butt. In proposal and, position. Um, and then that, or we even standing, right? Bring okay. your heel to the butt and then extend your your hips to so take that that knee mm-hmm. behind the other knee, right? Like extend it backward. Is there any reason to stretch your rectus femoris that far if you're never going to do that? You're never going to get anywhere near that far in cycling. Is that correct? 
Oh, like that that range of motion? Yeah. No. Gosh, no. Yeah. I don't think that would be. And I'm trying to just think, like, yeah, there's no, I know where you get even close to that. But remember, rectus femoris, because it crossed across the hip, attached to the pelvis. So mm -hmm. that can, it can act on the pelvis. Hmm. Yeah. Right? And it, so it's going to be, it's interesting though, right? Because it, in cycling, where it's stretched most across the knee is at 12 o'clock. Mm -hmm. That's also the point where it's most slack at the hip. Yeah. So it probably never gets into a position that's terribly towards its maximal. Yeah, but what's crazy about the rectus femoris is it's always changing length the whole time, right? Um, yeah, because it's, it's it, changing length of both joints yeah. too. So anytime you anytime you do either hip extension or knee extension, you've changed the length. So yeah. I bet if you look at the length over time graph, I mean it's uh, it's definitely not. You know, like quads, it's pretty simple. You know, yeah. long, short, long, short. Yep. Um, rectus femoris. It's actually an interesting question to think about. Yeah. Because yeah, it's kind of, it's lengthened at the knee and shortened at the hip at the top. Then it's relatively shortened at the knee and lengthened at the hip at the bottom. Mm -hmm. So I, so what would matter is the magnitude of excursion across each joint. I'm almost wondering if it's like a very flat curve. Like it almost doesn't. It almost doesn't change that much. Mm -hmm. It could be. Well, it would depend on your fit, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And when, when you have relative um, hip extension and knee extension, yeah. stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, I bet, it, I bet the curve of that, if you looked at it in an you know, average position on a bike, it doesn't change as much if you look at like, percentages, right, the range of motion. Yeah, certainly um, compared to like the major movers, yeah, like quads. I, I bet, uh, yeah, I bet it's a yeah. muted curve compared to the mm -hmm. Um, so those are probably the, the only other one would be like butterfly stretch, which I'm only starting to do recently. And that's one, I, I think that's another universal issue. Um, you, know, you said Western, yeah, Western civilization issue of, um, how do we, you know, how do we get into butterfly position? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, well, how many, you know, it's so, so classic, like you go to a, like you're at kids summer camp and everybody sits cross-legged mm -hmm. and then you go to like, you know, something in college and you're out camping and nobody can cross their legs anymore. Yep. You know, what happened? <laughs> uh, chairs and toilets. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's kind of why. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I am somewhat serious when I say that mm -hmm. though. Right. And that's like when I say like Western, the Western world, like we have toilets that we sit on. There are other places in the world where they do not sit on a toilet. They squat all the way down. Yeah. And, even the elders do that, right? And mm. they've done it. It's like this is like what I was talking about with the routine. Like, they have done it every day of their life, right? Like at least since they, yeah. you know, learned to use toilet that, and they've maintained that mobility. Mm. So right? you're so you're saying I'd have better needed chest if I'd uh, squatted all the way down every day yeah. of my life. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, right. It's like it's repetition. Like how many repetitions do these people have in their lifetime, right? And they, yeah. And they maintain that strength, right? I think. You know, I've, I've seen elderly folks that have grown up in those parts of the world and they can squat down. And, and I see, you know, plenty of elderly people that are born in America or Western country and they, there's no way, right? Mm -hmm. that if I ask them to squat all the way down to the floor, they, they, they laugh at me. Right? Like, uh, like sit in the chair, like, no, no, no. 
all the way like, yeah. no, I can't take it. I, like, I, I know that's <laughs> they wouldn't even matters. attempt it. Yeah. 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 And so I think that's it's very interesting to see that like, there is a practice effect, right? If you practice that every day a little bit, right? You maintain that mobility and that ability. Yeah. And if you don't, then you, you lose it along the way. Uh, so I think the, the only other muscle that and it also influences that movement is calves. We can talk about that. Okay. Um, I think like, so calves cross across the knee joint, like a gas rock, two heads, uh, both cross across the knee joint. Uh, and so I think I think when we talk about like ankling motion and pedaling, I think if you see somebody that's got uh, a lot of like relative plantar flexion to a toe down in their pedaling, okay. it might be a little bit of a tight calf issue. We also know that Cap, uh, lack of cap mobility can influence knee pain, uh, certainly with patellofemoral pain. We do see uh, calf immobility, calf stiffness being a, a predisposing factor. And then when you do uh, add calf mobility to treatment programs, that folks do get better. So I think that can can be a factor to investigate. And the other thing I think about with cycling is like, if you're running or walking, there's a natural force of your tibia going forward over your foot as you walk, as your weight moves forward, um, and you're in trailing limb posture that puts a little stretch on your calf, but we don't have one on the bike. And there's nothing that forces us to put our heel down and get a little dorsiflexion. So I think there may be something to be said. Like we're sort of predisposing ourselves to having limited calf as cyclists. As cyclists. Yeah. Yeah, there's some of that feedback. I th- another on this topic of calves, I at one point I consciously dropped my heel and you know, if you drop your heel, you extend your knee and your hip more to make up that space. And so if you are worried about your, you know, recruiting your quads and your glutes enough, that's a good way to, you know, if, if you're doing this conscious pedal mm-hmm. stroke, you, if you focus on um, dropping the heel, you can sometimes get more extension, mm-hmm. which I mean, the, that that's another thing that maybe we didn't talk about as much is, um, you know, this, this time under load, when we talk about weightlifting is very similar to the time under load of the pedal stroke, mm-hmm. which is, I want to use my quads and my glutes, which are the two biggest, you know, force production mm-hmm. muscles for as much of the pedal stroke as possible, because, you know, your force is power or what power is force times time. Yes. So the force that you can produce, you know, if we're just looking at a single pedal force motion, force, uh, isn't it times time? Because <laughs> watts are... Watt is the energy... Uh, watt has a second component too, or has a time yeah. component. So it should be times time. Because so force is instantaneous, and then power is is over time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Um. So if if we look at a single pedal stroke, you want to have the force as high as possible. Like if you you know you take the circle and you flatten it out on one dimension, yeah. and then the other dimension is the force. Yeah. And then if you add up all the area under the curve, yeah. this is uh, calculus. You want, you know, you want the, at all parts of that stroke to be as high as possible so yes. that the total area under the curve is as high as possible. Yes. This so. Is, this is why we have elliptical chain rings. 
Yes, except there's some ambiguity in those studies as well. Yeah, but the the, 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 it's the theory of why we would have elliptical shrinking, right, is to yeah. relatively shorten the time at 12 and 6 where we can't produce force and increase the time and the leverage at, yeah. at so, 3 and 9 where we can actually mm -hmm. produce the perfect perpendicular force. To the yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the goal is to... Um, you want to use your muscles for as long as possible. So yeah. if, if you're able to push your quad and your glute from, you know, one o'clock to five o'clock, that's a lot better than if you're pushing from two to four yes. in the pedal stroke. Yeah. And um, so this is another part of flexibility, which is, you know, we have this Gaussian with our length. How much of that Gaussian can we use in the pedal stroke? And how much of it is the area, the good part of the area? Mm -hmm. um, and combining those, that allows you to make your, you know, the force over time graph a lot better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to get as much peak power distributed for mm -hmm. as long as possible. So dropping, you know, back to the original idea of dropping your heel, this can allow you to, you know, apply power with your glutes and your quads for a longer portion of the pedal stroke. One, yes, one way to do that, yeah. yeah. Do you have other ways? <laughs> I'm, you know, not that I'm, like, incredibly interested or anything for my own uses. Well, but, I mean, I think there's a, there's a balance, right? So if you drop your heel, that then means you have to have adequate calf mobility mm -hmm. to allow it. And then now your, your calf has been lengthened and has to act as a stabilizer. Okay. Right, because it has to provide the force. And that, which means it's, it's also become a longer lever for the counter force right, into the pedal. Mm -hmm. So, there you go. It's like, hmm. do you, like, what's the proper angle? I think that's why, like, ankle angling technique is variable by rider. And it's like, there's not necessarily a consensus on better or not better. It's like, yep. like uh, nibbly, right? I feel like a lot of action. Mm -hmm. Right? When some people are like, zero action at the ankle. Yeah. Uh, so, I think there's a there's certain like by rider physiology here or whatever like muscle length balance is probably what's going on there yeah relative calf strength um but yeah i think it's probably have to find you have to, you have to find for you what allows you to achieve it so like for you it may be dropping the heel the next person may be having a like, 10 degree mobility at the ankle as they move through the pedal strip yep. so like at the end of the day it's What's the most efficient way for you to get the bike to go forward? Yeah. And the good news is I, I'm under the impression the brain does a lot of that work. Um, the Like the calculus to work that out, right? Yeah. Like, hmm, should I do this or should I do that? I, I think yes, but I also think it's it does some convenience sampling, right? Like, okay, well, you, you got... You're gonna do that, yeah. This works okay, right? But I don't, I don't know that the brain inherently pushes the limits unless you put it under stress, and then you. But I think like so, if you're in the last five miles of a race and the pace is really high, and you, you know, you have to push really hard. Like, yes, I think your brain's gonna do the calculus, but I don't know that it's something that you're gonna be like. You will pedal as efficiently as possible. Right, to get every last ounce out so you can stay with that breakaway, so you can stay in the group or make the move or whatever it is you need to do in the moment. But I don't know that's necessarily 
available to you unless you review it somehow. Like unless you see like a video of yourself, you're like, oh, that's interesting. I usually don't pedal like that, right? But I was pedaling like that, then I did really well. And hey, look, my kids look my power. Yeah. Right. Like I don't know that that in that moment, right? You're not like you're like this really sucks, but I need to stay with the breakaway. Um, mm -hmm. You're not thinking like, huh? You know, actually, I'm not dropping my heel anymore. That's really interesting. I'm going fast. Right. Like yeah. that's not what your cop, you know, your conscious process. So, like I don't know that we necessarily become aware of those things. Okay. Uh, I think without having some way to externally review it after the fact. Yeah. Like, right. You may be able to see your power like, whoa, that's a new peak power for 10 minutes or you know, like some other observation mm -hmm. on, a, on a Strava file or your Garmin or whatever you have, but you may not be able to access the technique unless you got some other way to observe it. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know if you had like a pedal based power meter that gave you that kind of data. Yeah. You could you see your like, pedal oh, curve okay, that's, that's interesting. That's a different curve yeah. than before. And well, and then a very easy argument with us is, you know, if, if our brains were that smart, we would be recruiting our glutes. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of like, we, we do convenience, right? Like, oh, yeah. that for that hard. It's cool. Let it, let it be. Yeah. And I mean, that's certainly, it's, you know, I've had issues with that and it's crazy how far you can get in the sport and still have a lot of these issues. Um, mm. And you were mentioning about, um, you know, really top athletes and how they have like crazy compensatory patterns. Um, yeah, no, it's, it is, it is amazing because I think we all hold really good athletes in really high regard and I don't want to take anything away from like, they are, they are amazing individuals. Like they're incredibly strong, incredibly athletic and they all like, they all work really hard for it so far as I can tell. Now, like you, I think there's plenty of talented people that didn't make it as lead athletes uh, for any number of reasons, injuries or bad luck or, you know, just didn't have the right mental mindset and going into it and willingness to, mm -hmm. to work harder every day. But you know, it's you know, having the opportunity to work with some of those folks, wow. You know, like I would have thought you know, you'd be like the perfect physical specimen, you know, I'm like, mm -hmm. oh no, like you have some of the same flexibility issues yeah. I do. That's that's actually kinda of interesting. It's yeah. like kinda of eye opening, right? And Well then but then again, you know, the top, top athletes you know, Chris Froome, Tom Dumoulin, you know, these people can get into these very extreme time trial positions and they can still produce a lot, a lot of power. Um, so. Are, are you saying they might be kind of flexible? Yes. I'm saying, you know, I think that you can get very far without flexibility, but eventually it comes back, you know, to haunt you. And I, I had a friend who, very good time trials, very good long distance rider, and he couldn't sprint. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he he told me one time his peak power was at like 100 cadence. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking, uh, I sprint at like 130, you know. And, you know, what it was was flexibility issues, core strength issues um, that, you know, he, he had focused so much on, you know, sort of, uh, this greedy, you know, like I'm thinking greedy algorithm, mm -hmm. which it sort of just takes the next best answer and says, okay, we'll yeah. start there and the next yeah. best and the next best. Yeah. Um, and eventually you get to this point where you have to step back and you have to say, 
well, I think I've gone as far as I can in this greedy way. Let's look at how people have gone further. How do I break through to the next step? Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people begrudgedly realize that flexibility is probably that thing. Um, and I, I mean, I have a teammate now who's, you know, it's, you have to stop riding and you need to stretch, um, because you have a lot of pain on the bike and it's time to, you know, address this issue and you do have to go backwards and not ride as much, but you get to go forward afterwards. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to give up the glamorous thing to do the kind of like behind the scenes. Yeah. Painful is not the right word for it, but you know, just like... Well, so, so here's my story is, um, I, I had like pretty bad flexibility issues, some, uh, lower back pain. Um, and I was doing a lot of lifting cause it's the winter and that is a great way to become inflexible <laughs> unless you, uh, unless you follow our, uh, no, but although there is research that eccentric loading does improve flexibility, but this may be more about the, you know, neural changes. Okay. So, well, I'm, I'm doing traditional, you know, just squats, deadlifts, yeah. stuff. Yeah, still in the second phase there. Okay. So, um, oh, yeah, I wonder if I'm, if I'm actually doing that. <laughs> um, but I, I just finished lifting, and I, you know, I decided now would be a good time to work on flexibility. It's the off-season. And I, so the way that I made it manageable for myself, I, I did about an hour you know, three or four times a week. And I picked out the muscles that I felt I struggled with and were common for cyclists to struggle with. And I, I would like listen to music or podcasts. Mm -hmm. And I, there, you know, there's this stretch room at the gym I go to that's, you know, everyone, you know, don't, don't talk in here. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes the lights are off. Sometimes the lights are on. Like there's a big mirror. Um, the mats are nice. And it just turned into this sort of meditative, relaxing, um, you know, the same way yoga, you, you finish a yoga session and you're like, wow, I feel so refreshed. Um, it was, it's sort of like that, but it's, it's yoga for myself and I get to listen to, you know, whatever enjoyable music and you get to turn off, you know, whatever stress you have for the day. And there's, you know, don't text anybody. Don't, you know, look at any news sources or anything. And you just get an hour of, um, relaxing music and, um, you know, you feel really refreshed afterwards. And then also in three months, your flexibility is going to be a lot better and you'll uh -huh. see yourself as a better cyclist. So the trick is having the hour or finding the hour. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's finding the hour right? yeah. and making it, making it an honest priority and appreciating, mm -hmm. like, I think it's like, this is going to pay dividends later. You, yeah. you need to do it now or not to, and they're like, whenever, but then I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that you have to do an intensive hour during the season. Yeah. That's the other thing I was going to say is, um, if I had to pick, you know, if we're doing a time, I'm not a time crunch cyclist, but if, if one were a time crunch cyclist, I could see 20 minutes may, you know, 30 minutes would definitely get it done. 20 minutes. You could maybe squeeze it in. Mm -hmm. And, um, I would do like three or four sets of 30 seconds each, um, per muscle. Yeah. At least three seconds. And I, you know, I think I'd say 15, 20 minutes, you can probably get the, the big things done, um, yeah. you know, a couple of times a week if you can. Uh, you know, I, I'm a fan personally, like my thing is I try to stretch, of course, every time after I ride a little bit, but then I try to also set aside one day where I'm going to do, you know, 30 or 40 minutes of yoga. That's my, my go-to. Mm -hmm. uh, I just I have a few couple DVDs that I like to follow and I have like routines that I like. From there, I feel pretty specific for what I need. 
and I, I try to just make sure I always set aside time fairly. Right? So I always say it's like a habit, right? Like, this is part of my routine. I know my recovery days. What I'm gonna do, and do it. Yeah, and do some of the less fun stuff of cycling. Yeah. If you want to get faster. I think that's, that's a good yeah. Thing. I think that's kind of anything in life that I think we said that before, right? Is that mm-hmm. if you're gonna get ahead, you're gonna get to that next level, the next step. At some point, you gotta like take the hard class, take the thing that you want, don't want to do, step yeah. into the, the challenge that you don't want to do, or that's you know it's been staring you down, and do the stretching or do the interval set that you don't want to yeah. do, or that you know it's intimidating you. Uh, yeah, and whatever it is, uh, I think that's how yeah. you're gonna you're gonna get to that next level and have that breakthrough is by mm-hmm. sitting down and, and facing up to the thing that's uh, a little bit intimidating and maybe don't yeah. want to do. And I think for a lot of athletes and people in general, it's not they're not afraid of the big race. They're afraid of the you know the, the tedious thing that they have to do twice mm-hmm. a week or three times a week. Yeah, getting getting to the start line. Right, anybody can show up at the start line. But it's it's putting in the, the prep work so that you're you're ready when you show up to that start line. Yeah. And also clean your bike. That's another that's another one on my uh, list of um, things I need to be doing once a week. <laughs> yeah, I think my mountain bike right now is actually cleaner than your than your road bike. To be, yeah. To be fair. I just ride so much and it's always I always have a good excuse, right? <laughs> Oh, well, you know, I have this, you know, oh, it might rain tomorrow, so why would I clean it now? And, you know. Never, never a good excuse, and your drive train should always be clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, um, well, I don't have a water spigot. How about that for an excuse? Do you have a shower? Oh, I do. I, I share it with someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the only other thing I had, um, we were talking about different sports. The... I went climbing, rock climbing recently um, with a friend and they they were trying to show me a move and I just couldn't do it and it didn't make sense. Um, and what, and it, what I figured out eventually was that I couldn't get, you know, she is like crazy flexible and I can't get my knee into the same position as her because I don't have good knee to chest mobility. Mm-hmm. And so I had to keep, I had to wing my knee out yep. and that throws off the weight distribution. So that puts way too much weight on your one hand and you're holding on just by your fingertips and to, to have this additional, you know, 30 pound leg to, yeah. to hold. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the difference between, you know, our ability to do the move. Um, and so, you know, climbing is an interesting sport in, in itself, but it, it was very, like, almost embarrassingly revealing of, like, oh, yeah, I got to work on my knee to chest a bit here. <laughs> so. Again, flexibility and, and power, right? I think we, yeah. Those are definitely those things can go together. Absolutely. Although, I think climbing's interesting, right? Because there's a lot of sometimes power requirement when you're at the end of a range of motion, right? Like yeah, that's right. Really, really stretched out, trying to get between two, you know, two holds or, you know, two, two mm-hmm. positions and have to actually generate a lot of power. Um, yeah. And not necessarily in the middle of that curve. And yeah, I like, I noticed right away of um, sort of, you know, okay, I have to tuck my knee all the way up and then get it onto this, you know, mm-hmm. hold. And, now and then I have position. to, yeah, and now I have to stand up just from that leg yeah. Um, you know, I, I can't do that right now, and well, that's that's something that you you have to work on. I think that's a, a toilet and chair problem, though. Yeah, we're back to the toilet and chair. Okay, I need to move somewhere where 
I, there are no toilets. <laughs> no, no, no toilets and no chairs, just for family yeah. possibility that way. But then maybe I won't spend as long in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Which might be good for my productivity anyway. Fair, fair enough. No, no more toilet texting. Yeah. So uh, I guess we've we've devolved enough to say uh, we're ending our podcast now. Yeah, so I think good enough for episode seven. Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening. Until next time. Yep. See ya.